Good morning. Uh, so you can turn your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 4. Um, if you haven't been with us during this year, we are once a month thinking about what, uh, God, what God urges for the uh, Ephesian Christians here um, to walk worthy of their calling and to consider what God has done, why that matters, and how should that change our ambition, our hope, our behavior, our thinking. And we started through the year, um, through the first six months, thinking about unity. And that really turned out to be um, just an incredibly helpful thing, I think, for all of us to consider is how essential God's design for unity is and how we need to protect that unity. We're going to be getting now into the part of the chapter that transitions into more personal applications. And this lesson, um, titled Renovation Regeneration, if you were here last week in Zechariah 7 and 8, uh, we talked about how the Jews in Zechariah's time, God was trying to encourage them to make true reforms, true reforms of the heart. And that in making those true reforms, God was going to regenerate their condition. He was going to glorify their work. He was going to work with them in ways that exceeded the immediacy of the work that they were doing. And we're going to be seeing similar principles in the lesson this morning taken to a more uh, fulfilled place in Christ. Um, But I want to consider again just the first few verses. This is just such such a good verse to memorize and just have like like an anthem or a banner or just something that, that you say to yourself in your mind to remind yourself of just the overall picture of, of what it is that God has called us to be doing together, and even individually. So much comes to mind when we think about God's calling and the urging of God's calling and why his calling is so urgent and powerful. So we'll read this together before we get into verse 17. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we're more than halfway through the year now. I just want to ask you, have you been walking in a manner that has been more worthy of the calling? Has God's calling been impacting you? Has it been changing the way that you think? Has it been calling you out of your comforts in the present distress that we've been experiencing? How has this been changing you as we've been studying through this this year? And I leave that, leave that with you. We're going to be looking at uh, 17 through 24, and um, the order of this instruction really goes together. And I think seeing the nature of the order of this instruction is very helpful. Um, for me, this probably has been one of the most impactful and faith-changing applications to understand better. And I remember being in a study at one point, and a brother pointed out something very apparent within the text that helped me immensely, and so I hope that it can help you in the same way. I'm going to read verses 17 through 24 again and just kind of make a couple of observations about the order of the application before we get more specific. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, 
have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So here's what I missed for so long that has impacted me so much to have noticed and thought more about. In this text, you have a putting off and a putting on. So starting in verse 17, he really urges us to recognize what God is calling us out of. Because if you remember when we were thinking about the, the, the concept of a calling, a calling is getting taken out of one condition and being brought into another. So God is calling us out of a condition. And that's what we see in verses 17 through uh, 19. And then in verse 24, God is calling us into a new condition. So in verse 22, he summarizes our old condition by saying we need to put off our old self, our former manner of life. And in verse 24, we need to put on our new self. But notice verse 23. This is the glue that cements us into the application of putting on. That these things don't just happen by external means, but that there's something that we do internally that activates the work of putting off what was old and putting on what is new, and that is the renewing of our mind. And so that's where I want to focus the, the, the emphasis of the lesson this morning is what does it mean to renew our mind so that when we get into the rest of the applications through this year in Ephesians 4, we can have a greater context of application uh, in the way that we need to. So I want to start with verses 17 and 19. We're told to recognize that we can no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Um, Gentiles in this context would really just be those that do not know God. Everybody who is alienated from God, like it says in verse 18, alienated and excluded. So all of us individually, we're all being called out of futility but what does futility mean? What comes to your mind when you think about something that's futile? Futility literally just means emptiness as to results. And maybe to put this in a more understandable illustration, so I guess there's a famous phrase that really originated from Star Trek. Um, it's resistance is futile. Usually a villain will say that to the hero when like they have the upper hand and they feel powerful. And so what do they mean when they're saying resistance is futile? What they're saying is the effort that you're putting in, this ambition you have, it's all in vain. It's not going to amount to anything. The idea is the result will be found empty. You're wasting your time. But I don't just want to illustrate it in that way. God actually gives rich illustrations of futility. Obviously, this is an important concept to understand. But just kind of keep that in mind that we're dealing with a concept that is seeking something that is empty, that ultimately it's going to be found meaningless in the end. Look at Isaiah chapter 44. I think every idea throughout Ephesians 4 verses 17 through 19 is really found in an illustration within this, this context. Um, this might sound weird to say, but as far as idolatry goes, this is my favorite illustration or example of idolatry in the entire Bible. 
This is meant to be a comical illustration of idolatry. It's meant to be something that God is giving as a very clear insight into what makes idolatry so ridiculous. I'm going to start with verses 9 through 11 just to make a couple of connections to this idea of futility. And we'll connect it with some of the things that are here on the board, especially with futility being rooted within idolatry as its basis. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who is fashioned to God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. So, verse 9. Futility is rooted within idolatry. If you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, that shouldn't really come as much of a surprise as a principle for futility. Remember, it talks about how God has made himself known within creation. And although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the corruptible form of what is created. So futility has always been rooted within idolatry. And seeing idolatry isn't just meant to be a disconnected illustration of something that no longer exists within our lives or is no longer a danger, maybe because we're not actually crafting physical images, but there are eternal principles that we are meant to relate to where we can connect these ideas of futility to this illustration. So I want to read the rest of this, verse 12 through 20, and just think about these definitions here. Assigning power, profit, and promise with false expectations, I think is what we see here. That anything that we're assigning power to, when that power can only be given to God, when we're assigning profit to something, when that profit only belongs to God, or promise to something when God is the one who really has that promise and the power to fulfill it, we are living with a false hope and a false expectation that's making any pursuit of those things futile. Look at verse 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool, does his work over the coals, fashioning it, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. And notice this emphasis now on he's spending time, he's spending energy, he's getting worn out, he also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn, so he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat, and he, as he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes, so that they cannot see, 
and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Assigning power, profit, and promise with false expectations. The idea of all this energy that's been spent here was all a complete waste of time. Not only was it a waste of time, but ultimately is only causing harm in the fact that this will lead to falling into the hands of God's wrath, creating an image instead of worshiping him. So, and you notice in Ephesians 4, it mentioned that they were darkened in their understanding, having a hard heart and having become callous. All of these things are present within the text. So notice verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding. They don't know, they don't understand, and God has even smeared over their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts cannot comprehend. And to change perspective is as easy as just asking a simple question. Is there not a lie in my right hand? It's as easy as just asking one simple question. So why though? So it mentions he feeds on ashes. You just imagine that illustration of actually taking ashes from the fire and eating them and swallowing them into your stomach. Maybe a more relatable way of thinking about this is drinking salt water when you're thirsty. I used to live in Florida when I was younger and uh, my dad was an avid swimmer and free diver. So we would go out pretty far and um, my dad was, uh, he could really hold his breath for a long time. Um, I think at least five to eight minutes he could hold his breath. He didn't like using, well, he didn't want to pay the money for like scuba diving gear. So he just got really good at holding his breath forever. So I would want to hold my breath for a long time too. But as you can imagine being a kid, sometimes I would get to the top of the water, take my breath very strongly and swallow some salt water. And can you imagine what happens next? I throw up <laughs> because salt water, it's not like normal water, obviously, right? We all know that if you drink salt water, it's not going to quench your thirst. It's going to make it worse. This idea of feeding on ashes is you're treating something as satisfying that does not even have the ability to satisfy what you're digesting it for. This idea of all of this work that this man is doing is a complete waste of time. It's not important what he's doing and he's assigning glory to this image, to creation, that only God is capable of getting. So here I think is the main point. Futility is sustained when we don't see or care for God's judgment or his love. The context of this verse is God's love and judgment. In verse 21, he goes on to say, remember these things, O Jacob. Renew your mind. Put the thought into your mind. Ask the simple question. And Israel, for you are my servant, I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. You know, there's a book where somebody thinks about God's judgment a lot. And he doesn't think about the law of Moses or really any of the regulations or rituals of the priesthood or any of those things. He just thinks about life. 
And wouldn't it be nice if somebody as a philosopher of life and considering futility, wouldn't it be nice if they actually had the power, the profit, the position, and the freedom where they could actually take life's pleasures or the things that make life seem meaningful under the sun, wouldn't it be nice if they could just take everything to its conclusion and just tell us outright what has meaning? When that philosopher, Solomon, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he saw vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all futile under the sun. But the simplicity of just considering we're all going to die, and there are things that are crooked about life that God has put within our heart to see that our injustices, that we want it to be fixed. But we see that under the sun there is no fix. And he comes to the conclusion, the famous words, the end of the matter is this, to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every act into judgment, whether good or evil, including every secret thing. Futility comes to an end when we expose ourselves to the end. Alienation is the end of futility. So you remember in Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn back there, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, where it mentions that they were alienated or excluded from the life of God. God in Christ has shown us the end of the futility of the world. What's the conclusion? The end is alienation. When we experience semblance, similarities to that end, it awakens us to recognize and distinguish between that which is meaningful and valuable and that which is futile. God's judgment brings light to futility. So all of this is really going to be connected. So still really thinking about this concept of futility. Um, In Isaiah 44, God mentions that he had already, he had redeemed them, that they could return to him. Any worldview that is futile is always going to be sustained by not seeing or caring about God's judgment or love. But it's also going to be sustained by feeling empowered by that view. So it mentions that all of this is happening, the pursuit of futility, because of the ignorance that is in them caused by the hardness of their heart and having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality. Think about this. Every worldview is appealing when it empowers those who believe it. Any worldview is empowering or is going to be believed when it empowers those who believe it. So, for example, um, atheism, the idea that we're all animals and we have no greater standard than what we feel ourselves is what is right from our own imaginations. And that worldview, that, that way of seeing things, that we're all just really ultimately animals living only for the present, that's empowering if you have the ability to fulfill your own lusts. But you know who that's not appealing to? Do you know when that view loses its power? When somebody's the victim of that view. You think about people who are kidnapped by people who are acting like animals. People who are abused, who are thrown away, or treated like garbage to empower someone else's lusts that they want to act on. Do you really think that atheism then has power over that person who is the victim of somebody acting with freedom on their instincts? There's a victim in Isaiah 44, and it's the greatest 
victim who has power to illuminate anyone in futility. You know, even if we don't feel like we're hurting anyone else by sin or futility, God is always the victim of sin. You know what the problem is with becoming callous by sin? Is not being impacted by the reality of how intimate and close God is with me. And the inescapable reality like Ecclesiastes chapter 12 that I will give a verbal account of my life to God and that every single thing I do is going to fall into his hands and there is nothing I can do to escape it. And it's not just the fear of that judgment. It's that God has only ever done good to try to bless and save and redeem in the end. God is the victim of every view, every philosophy, except that which puts him first. So we are called to renovate our minds and to renew our minds. So look at back at verses 20 through uh, 23. But you did not learn Christ in this way. And this is, again, this progression of the point that every view seems to be empowering until we rec- recognize the victim of the view. And what we've learned is that Christ is the victim of our sin and that he became the victim so that we could be saved from being the victims of our own sin. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So we're called to renew our minds, but what does this mean? Just as I already mentioned it, it literally means to renovate. And we have some members here who are renovators. Uh, Paul is a renovator of buildings. And so Paul, even right now, is working on multiple structures, bathrooms, uh, apartments, um, patios. So Paul is familiar with this idea of renovating something. Um, Mike, back there, is a renovator of people's mouths, renovator of teeth. And in both cases... Why would somebody need renovation? Usually it's because there's damage that needs to be repaired, right? The problem too, though, is with renovating, it's ultimately really not going to seem very urgent until we see that need to replace or restore. The idea of renewing is not, it doesn't end at renewing a subscription, like you might renew you know, Amazon or Netflix. This is the idea of replacing, making new, and restoring. Um, And people get used to oftentimes living in pretty deplorable conditions. And that's really the beginning of the context that we've been looking at, is the world has become content living in a deplorable condition. So there's an illustration I thought about for this that may be helpful to see this maybe a little bit more clearly. Um, Has everybody heard of hoarding, like the hoarding condition? So that's when somebody accumulates a bunch of junk and they fill their house with things that they're not willing to throw away, and it just ends up stacking up more and more. Well, there's a TV show where they send a psychiatrist and a cleaning crew to somebody whose hoarding has gotten out of control. And um, when somebody has been hoarding secretly in their home for years, usually it's only found because there are serious hazards at the point when the conversation really begins. Usually there's health hazards where things are so dilapidated just by the weight of everything that the house or the apartment is in danger of collapsing. 
Um, they can't move around, and so if there's a fire or an accident, they're going to die in, in their home without being able to escape. Sometimes there's hazards because what people hoard are corpses of dead animals. And so just by being in the house, their health is actually in danger just by reason of being present in it. And usually when, again, this is discovered, this has been going on for so long that it's gotten out of control. And when they let somebody that they love into their home finally, oftentimes it's met with horror, disgust, and tears because of amazement that they could be living in this way and be content within it. That's our story. So Christ comes and he finds us in this condition. The thing when somebody's being helped here, they're being urged to renovate not just the living structure, but the structure of their thinking that led to this in the first place. So the emphasis on truth is in Jesus, that we need to follow through with what we have heard and what we have been taught to lead us into the renovation of our minds, to put on this new man, which is in the likeness of Christ. The person who's been hoarding, whenever that that crew is sent to their home, they have people who are seeing things from a better perspective. They're seeing the gold. It's people who have done it before, who have dealt with the condition before. And so they're having to have some hard conversations to help this person think differently about their condition. And when people are emptying out their home, really, they ultimately just need to listen. But you know why that's so hard? It's because they have developed an attachment to things that they should have never developed in the first place. And so a lot of times it's the family, it's relatives who are helping with emptying out the hoard in these people's houses. And the people they love are trying to urge them, we need to get rid of this thing. And usually it's some meaningless piece of junk, right? Can't be sold and oftentimes it has like mold or feces on it. And so, I mean, it's, it's obvious it's useless. But when they bring it to the person, they say, well, no, this is important to me. This is, this is valuable to me. Because again, they have been spending time investing in futile things. And so being taught in Christ and learning about Christ in reference to our former manner of life, Jesus, when he's renovating our minds, is going to find things that we have developed undue, un, ungodly attachments for. And this is why it's so important that we see that truth in verse 21 is not just a series of facts to be known and agreed upon, but truth has its living form in the person of Jesus. Because when I come to Scripture and I see commands that I'm hesitant to obey, when I see ideologies, ways of thinking that I'm hesitant to adapt, when I see commands that are going to take me to places or build relationships that are far outside of the realm of my own comforts. I have to trust, just like a hoarder needs to trust, that Jesus sees things more clearly than me. And that Jesus, when he's telling me to let go of a certain way of thinking or a habit that I want to hold on to, he loves me. And he is trying to reform my life into a regenerated and perfected condition. And it's trusting the perspective of Jesus that will lead me to yield my will when I'm unwilling of myself to have any other reason for doing so. And so we have to recognize that every command that God gives involves renewing of our mind. Just even look, for example, at the preceding verses, starting in verse 25. We're to lay aside falsehood and speak truth with our neighbors, but why? 
because we need to renew our minds and recognize that we're members of one another. Why are we to be angry and not sin? Because we need to renew our minds and recognize we can't give the devil an opportunity. Why are those who steal the steal no longer in labor? Because they need to renew their minds and consider those who have needs. Why should we be diligent about no unwholesome words coming out of our mouths and only speaking for edification? Because we want to give grace to those who are going to hear it. We don't want to grieve. We don't want to injure the Holy Spirit of God any longer. Why should we let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you with all malice? Because God in Christ has forgiven us. All of these applications involve the renewing of the mind as the basis of the application that catapults whatever is external to be put in its proper context of practice. Every command that God gives involves a renewing of the mind. And it's like continuously going through this process of recognizing if Jesus is calling me here, if he's calling me to do this, he understands what's right when I don't. And that when he's calling me to make an application, it's because he knows the circumstance better than I do. He knows what's necessary better than me. He knows what's good when I don't. Just as, again, a hoarder would need to trust the word and the perspective of those outside of themselves who love them, right? So finally, we're to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The work of renovation is messy. Whether it's like Paul just doing renovation of a house, even if it's not for something like a hoarder, but just repairs are messy. Uh, Mike in working on people's teeth and even repairing damage to people's mouths. It's a messy work. But it holds promise and value of true glory. Again, why is somebody willing to pay Paul the money and sacrifice the time to go into the place that's being renovated? They're willing to do it because they see that there's value in its glorified condition. It holds promise. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The idea is, when it says that this new self has been created in the likeness of God and been created in righteousness and true holiness, those are the two qualities, the only two qualities, that are going to endure. So whereas the world is pursuing futility, they're pursuing profit and gain that ultimately is not going to amount to anything in the end. And just like a hoarder, you don't look at somebody whose house is filled with animal corpses and junk up to the roof and you don't look at that as a reasonable person and say, wow, I wish I lived like that. What an admirable way to live. We don't look at people who in the world may seem to be prosperous or talented when they have received glory in the world at the expense of God. We don't look at these things with admiration, knowing the futility that is at work behind it. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18, some final principles and applications that I think can help us to have a clearer picture of really what we're being called to do. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Righteousness and holiness are worth temporary losses. 
Again, somebody is willing to go to Mike for dental work, even though it's going to uh, lead to a process of recovery, there's going to be pain. I hate going to the dentist, but why, do you, why are you willing to subject yourself to it? Because again, you, you realize the value of what's gained through it. So in renewing our minds, we're looking more and more at the things that are not seen. The application is renewing our minds is a daily discipline. This isn't just something that we turn on and turn off. This is when we go to work. We are striving to renovate our way of thinking about work. We're trying to renovate our way of thinking as husbands, as wives, as children, as friends. We're trying to renovate our minds about the way that we speak. And although it's messy and time-consuming, although it presses our patience, we recognize that the glory of what is gained through the process is greater than whatever is lost. Again, you think about somebody hoarding again, and their house is in a dilapidated condition. Um, Again, in the show where they send help to these people, when they see the end result, they're always flabbergasted that their house could even look like that, the space that they have, how livable, how welcoming it is. And so God, in the same way, we need to be looking at the end, Christ in his glory. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 5. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 5. So again, this is something we are striving for daily. You know, we are constantly waking up in the morning, we are, we are striving to bring into our minds Christ. But not just conceptually at some point in the day. The point of the passage we're going to look at is we are striving to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So here's the goal. Paul in Ephesians 4 is giving a parallel. You have the futility that the world is pursuing that really ultimately not only amounts to nothing, it only amounts to catastrophic loss of the one thing, the one thing that matters. And people in the world are not to be envied as they pursue futility because of the callousness of their heart against God. But we are to recognize that the parallel to that futility is the glory of Christ that is eternally enduring. And although there's, there's difficulty, again, in letting go of what is old and putting on what is new, we recognize that the reason for that difficulty is because we have immersed ourselves into that futility and we desperately need the help of God's grace to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of the person of Jesus Christ. And again, the difference between just seeing the Bible as facts to be listed and memorized and seeing it as a testimony to the form of the glory and fullness of God, is seeing Christ in his glory in a way to put on in the renewing of the mind, this adoration, the gratitude of his work, seeing the intimacy of his involvement, his patience, his forgiveness, his love, leads to an adoration that will compel us to proper imitation. So I'd urge you this morning by way of invitation to consider the glory in contrast to the futility of what's been revealed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Ultimately, Christ has been sent to liberate us from our futile way of living inherited from our forefathers. And he's offering us redemption, not by silver and gold, but by precious blood, the blood of Christ that was shed as the Lamb of God for our sins. To redeem us, not just to live a life still spent in ignorance of the will of God or his glory, but completely immersed in the promise of his willingness to work with us in the struggle of renovating us from what was old into what is new in Christ. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, please come and bring it forward while we stand and sing an invitation song.